Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good morning. Welcome to today's session. The first thing I need to tell you all is I'm not Caroline Baum. I'm sorry for that, and I'm sorry for her. She's been laid low with this terrible flu that's around at the moment. So my name's Nicole Abadie. I'm just delighted to be here. I'm the books writer for Good Weekend magazine, and I interview writers at festivals like these. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with much-loved radio host and award-winning writer Richard Feidler about his fourth book, The Book of Roads and Kingdoms, which was published in 2022. It's the story of medieval travellers who set out from Imperial Baghdad during Islam's Golden Age to explore the unknown world. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. Author and broadcaster Richard Feidler majored in history and politics at the Australian National University. He was a member of the wildly successful music comedy trio, the Doug Anthony All-Stars in the 1980s. Many of you might remember or know him from there, as I certainly remember him from those days. He's the author of um, a number of best-selling books, Ghost Empire and The Golden Maze. Ghost Empire is about Istanbul, Golden Maze is about Prague, and he's the co-author of the equally successful Saga Land on Iceland. He's probably best known to all of you his long-running ABC radio program and national institution, Conversations with Richard Feidler, which he started in 2005. It's now Australia's most popular uh, podcast with 70 million downloads last year. Earlier this year, the book that we're talking about today, The Book of Roads and Kingdoms, won the highly sought-after Indie Award for Non-Fiction Book of the Year. The Sydney Morning Herald has described this book as follows. A bewitching tale consisting of stories within stories that radically tints the Western reader's perspective, revealing a world when all roads lead to Baghdad. Richard, this book is dedicated to your father and you say to his wall of history books in the living room. Tell us about some of those books. And I was wondering, was it your father and those books that inspired your own love of history? Yes, very much so. Both my parents uh, uh, were working class country people. Mum from rural South Australia, dad from Victoria. Uh, And in that way, in those cultures, reading is so important in those cultures. And they were both autodidacts. And I grew up in a house with a huge amount of fiction, which is my mother's sort of end of the bookcase, and Dad's was the history end. Dad was the non-fiction end. Mum was a lover of Tolstoy, and, and uh, in particular, I think she read Anna Karenina and House, uh, War and Peace about six times, yeah. and she used to say things like, oh, my God, I just wish I could have lived like one of those aristocrats in those days, being pulled along in a troika, swathed in furs through the snow. And my dad would say something like, Pamela, those aristocrats lived off the misery of uncounted <laughs> millions of serfs and people. And she'd go, oh, shut up, Alan, shut up. <laughs> and uh, Dad was the, the history guy, mainly 20th century history. He'd served in the Air Force at the fag end of World War II and developed a love of history from his own adventures there and from his own insatiable curiosity about the world. I remember looking at those books and thinking to myself, if I could understand 
what was in those books. I might have the kind of secret of the world. I thought the secret of the world sort of lay within, it's very Borgesian idea, that the secret of the world might lie within one or two or a bunch of those books together. And so I thought they were always, for me, a kind of a symbol of wisdom. And for me, reading history has been one of the greatest pleasures in my life. And also, and I'm not saying this is a, this is, works for everyone, a shield against depression. I think it's always inspired a degree of curiosity and excitement in me. Like this feeling when I get a new book, it's like, oh, goody, that mm. lovely, delicious feeling. Anyone else know that feeling? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and feeling just like the whole world, part of the whole world sort of slightly come, come into focus again is one of, it's such a, such a joyful thing for me. For me, I think always history has been, I think without history, I think we are orphans. I think one of the things we all want to know about ourselves, I certainly always wanted to know, was where does my tiny, infinitesimally small life fit into the great stream of events and places and people that have come before me and are sort of carrying me on, and all of us, on into the future? Without knowing that, I just don't know how you live that way, without knowing what came before, to be condemned to live in the eternal present where you're constantly surprised by things that keep happening to you all the time and everything seems new. I, I often like to quote Winston Churchill about these matters. Churchill was often asked why he wrote history and was so obsessed with history. And he said memorably, because the further you can see back, the further you can see forward. And I, I think at best history does that for us. Mm. I'm really interested. This book, like all of your others, is deeply, deeply, meticulously researched. Richard's books always have the most wonderful endnotes, the most wonderful bibliographies. This one's a 13-page bibliography with books on everything, from science, philosophy, language, history, from everyone, by everyone, from Marco Polo to Justinian. Now, in the past, you've been able to travel the world and research your books. This time you were, as you said, like the rest of us on home detention with COVID. Yeah. How did you do this research? And in particular, how did you find so many of these ancient and medieval texts that you refer to? Well, I plan to write another book altogether, Nicole. I plan to write another book about a part of the world that would require me to do what I've done with my earlier books, which is to travel there, have some experience or an adventure there, and then write that into, as travel writing, into the history of the place. And when COVID struck, that, of course, became impossible for all of us. And I thought, well, I want to do something more with my life than bake sourdough bread uh, <laughs> during lockdown. And so I thought, why don't I write about travel or travellers? Mm -hmm. I went back to the Vikings. I'd written about the Vikings with my friend Kari Gislason in Sagaland. And I thought, look, at the, let's, instead of the Vikings that went from Norway over to Iceland, let's look at the Vikings that went east into Russia. And that led me to an account. And it's the only account we have in existence from the Middle Ages of a Viking human sacrifice mm. that takes place on the Volga River in modern-day Russia, near where the city of Kazan is today in Russia. And it's a hair-raising and harrowing account uh, one of the most extraordinary documents I think I've ever read of the Middle Ages. And it's written by an Arabic traveller by the name of Ibn Fadlan. And he was entrusted with a group of other people uh, with a, a job by the Caliph in Baghdad, who was something between like an emperor and a pope, if you like, the Abbasid emperor in Baghdad. They were sent north out of Baghdad to form a treaty with the king on the Volga River. And his account of his journey is is it turns kind of horrifying, Heart of Darkness 
type journey out of the comforts and splendor of the great metropolis of Baghdad into the badlands of uh, the Ustyut Plateau near the Caspian Sea and up through these unspeakably cold and dangerous and barren regions where he's forced to throw himself upon the hospitality of local Turkic tribes and is completely ungrateful for all the help they give him and look into his snobbly sort of, oh, these people, they don't bathe enough and my God, their Islam is imperfect and oh my God, what can you do with these people? He was like a real urbanite, cafe latte drinking inner city wanker who's like <laughs> thrust out of the great metropolis and forced to live in somewhere like Kubapedi, essentially. <laughs> And, and he's snobbery and his bitchiness, but he's also genuine terror because these are really dangerous places he's travelling through. And they get there eventually, and it's all going fine with the local king. He welcomes them and says he wants to be instructed in the correct ways of Islam, and Ibn Fadlan can help him with that. And then the king said, so where's the, um, where's the wagon load of gold your caliph promised me uh, in exchange for me accepting his sovereignty? And Ibn Fadlan has to say, well, that hasn't arrived yet because he was under the understanding that the wagon load of gold that was going to be extorted by a local prince was going to arrive. No, it hasn't. And the king gets a little bit mad. And he sort of holds them hostage. And Ibn Fadlan, in this strange place, so far from the land he loves, goes through something like a nervous breakdown, I think. He starts to see all these things. He sees jinn warriors fighting in the sky, which we might assume to be the Aurora Borealis. He's taken by the king to see what the king tells him are the bones of a giant that had wandered into their lands from the realm of Gog and Magog. And they'd hanged this giant from a tree and he sees these giant bones that flabbergast him. And like, what could that have been? The bones of a mastodon thought out or a bear? Who knows? We don't know, of course. And then the Vikings arrive. And at first, Ibn Fadlan thinks the Vikings are these astonishing people. He writes about them, he says, oh my God, these are the most beautiful people. They're tall, they have russet hair, their clothes are extraordinary, their, their, their jewellery is amazing, um, the way they conduct themselves, they're so manly and extraordinary, the women are incredible. And then day two, after the Vikings arrive, he says, these are the most disgusting people I've <laughs> ever met. In my, oh my God, they fornicate and defecate in front of everyone. Uh, when they get up in the morning, the chieftain has, he writes, the chieftain has a slave girl bring a wooden bowl with water and the, the chieftain ejects the contents of his nose into the bowl, then he puts his comb in it, combs his hair, then he takes a sip from it and then he passes it to the next senior man who does the same thing and it goes down through oh. all the senior men and, you know, the, the guy at the end of the queue would be like, the, you know, the kid, the kid who's oh. last to be bathed on a bath night in England in the 1950s, isn't he? It's like, don't get into, don't use that water, buddy. Um, and then the chieftain dies, and they go to the chieftains, the senior men go to the slaves of the chieftain, and they say, which among you wishes to die alongside your master? And a slave woman volunteers, according to Ibn Fadlan's account. And what happens to her over the next few days is one of the most horrifying, mad things I've ever read. It's, and then the moment of her sacrifice is a rite that's so impregnated with blood and sex and magic and horror that I, th I sort of realised as I was reading it that anyone who was present in that room, in that space, to see this sacrifice, travel it right out to the very furthest realms of human existence. So after having read that, I wondered, I don't really want to write about the Vikings again at all. I want to write about guys like Ibn Fadlan and mm. their response to these events because he felt curiously modern mm. to me in his he response to what he said that in the book. Saying. I was going to ask you what you yeah. meant by that. 
Yeah, insofar as we can really, uh, I, I think as modern people, we can read his response to this and, go, and, and understand why he feels the way he, he, he does mm. or his feelings that aren't very worthy of him, really. You sort of go, oh, oh we've been found land. Really, please, can you, you know, just accept this hospitality that's offered you. And, and then I wondered how many other accounts there were of such travellers and, and I found this whole trove, this vast trove of accounts of medieval travellers who went out of Imperial Baghdad when it was the biggest and richest city in the world, the most sophisticated and best educated population, travelled out to the four corners of the known world and came back and wrote accounts of them. Can I just stop you there? I want to take you back a bit because certainly... I have to admit my ignorance. I didn't know a lot about the, the golden age of Islam. So I just wanted you to talk to us a little bit about that. When and what was the golden age of Islam? Islam came, the, the, the empire of the Muslims came into the world so quickly, with such abruptness, it really does count as one of the most abrupt and far-reaching changes in all of human history. Previous to the rise of the Muslims, the Eastern Roman Empire, which we call Byzantium now, and the Sassanid Persian Empire were the dominant empires of the region. They regarded the Bedouin Arabs of Arabia as a marginal, slightly contemptible people who lived on the, their leavings, if you like. They weren't even interested in conquering that peninsula because it was arid and barren. The two empires went to war with each other in this 20-year war that left both sides utterly ruined and devastated which meant they kept their eye off what was happening at the same time on the Arabian Peninsula, which was a revolution. The traitor Muhammad came forward, had his revelation from the angel Gabriel, was told to recite the words of the Quran came out of his mouth, which gave us the Quran, and he succeeded through the, through the, the grandness, I suppose, the grandeur of his vision in, in uniting all the feuding tribes of Arabia and making them one, which we don't really know if that ever had ever happened before. After his death, the first of the caliphs, uh, Abu Bakr, his first lieutenant, uh, caliph is a word meaning successor, and also kind of deputy uh, to the prophet, he thought, well, we'll have some border raids to get some money to pay the tribes. They went to the Roman and Persian outposts, and there was really no one there to defend them. And these border raids very, uh, raids very quickly became uh, raids of conquest. And in like several decades, that's all it took, half the Eastern Roman Empire was gone from mm. the grasp of Constantinople. The provinces mm. of Syria and Palestine and Egypt, Egypt, which had been Roman since the time of Antony and Cleopatra, was gone from the grasp of the Romans forever. And then the Bedouin Arabs took all of the Sasanian Persian Empire, going right across Mesopotamia, right across the Iranian Plateau, all the way into Central Asia. And in no time at all, they put together an empire that was the biggest empire the world had ever seen, bigger than the Roman Empire at its absolute peak, stretching from North Africa to India. They had their first capital in Medina, then uh, Damascus for a long while, then there was a revolution, the Umayyads were overthrown and the Abbasid, a new dynasty was established around the purpose-built capital of Baghdad. And so tell us about the founding on the Tigris River of yeah. the city of Baghdad. Ba Baghdad was built as a purpose-built capital. Damascus was a Roman city that they'd sort of taken over, so they wanted their own capital, and it had to be further east because that's where the action was. Mm. It really, you know, we've grown up with this uh, view of history that thinks it all happens around Europe, uh, but really they knew at the time all the money and action and culture was in the east. So the Caliph Mansur wanted to build a capital on the Tigris River. 
because that was the land of Mesopotamia, incredibly fertile between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And he wanted it to be in the neighbourhood of other great empires like Babylon, Nineveh, uh, Tessaphon, the former capital of the Sasanian Persians. And built this purposeful capital around a disc, a ring in a centre. So effectively it was like the Canberra of the, <laughs> the Abbasid Empire, built around a circle with roads radiating out from a spoke. And there were four gates to the outside world. And having completed it, Mansur, Mansur stood on the uh, eastern gate and looked out onto the Tigris River and he's proclaimed, here is the Tigris and nothing stands between it and China. And placed in that part of the world, Baghdad became the centre of the world, the, the hub, if you like, which the rest of the world revolved around. Road, road trade routes, roads went to, to China, maritime routes went there as well, to India, Sri Lanka, which was known as the island of Serendip, down the coast of Africa, and to Constantinople, and to Rome in, in the west. And this, this, very quickly, the city became the richest and biggest in the world. And Richard, you make the point, which I thought was really interesting, you contrast it to what was happening in Europe at the time, which was the Dark Ages. It yes. was the very opposite of that here, wasn't it? You, you describe in the book the flourishing culture in Baghdad. Tell us a little bit about that. Very, the, the Abbasids, the, the Bedouin Arabs of Abbas, uh, the Abbasid Empire and the Persians who lived there as well, were mad for books, mad for travel, and mad for books about travel. Very quickly, the Bedouins went, Arabs went from being a pre-literate society to the most literate culture on the planet. There were several reasons why that happened. One was the advent of a new kind of Arabic calligraphy, which made joined up writing uh, much quicker to perform. So it was very uh, much easier to copy books very, very quickly as a result. They imported Indian numbers, which we call, which we use today, one, two, three, four, five. We call them Arabic numbers because they were introduced to Europe from the Arabic world, but they were imported from India. And suddenly computation became a breeze. As anyone who's tried to divide M, C, L, D, V, I, I, into equal portions of L, X, V, I, I will instantly be able to grasp. So with that, you get accountancy, um, the, the economy flourishes, but you get mathematics. And of course, the word algorithm is an Arabic word. And suddenly, all sorts of knowledge becomes available to you from mathematics to geography because you have this uh, easily computable form of mathematics. The other thing was the uh, importation of Chinese paper-making technology. This happened not long after the Battle of Talas, where the Arabs and the Chinese, Tang Dynasty China, went to war for the only time in their history. The Arabs won the battle in Central Asia comprehensively. And there was a story that said that uh, some of the Chinese prisoners of war had paper-making knowledge, and they brought that into the empire. And suddenly, books take off. Before then, you had to write on papyrus, which was unreliable, it rotted, you could erase it very easily, forgeable documents and the like. There was parchment made from animal skins, too expensive. But suddenly, uh, paper pulp, like the pulp of plant matter, you put it on a screen, it's incredibly cheap to make. It has this incredible tensile strength, as you can see. And the Arabs found, of course, if you've got a sheaf of paper, you, you could just stack it together like that, bind it along one edge, and you have a codex, which is a much more elegant way of containing knowledge in a book than a scroll, where you have to sort of fill it up and fill it down. But with a book, as we all know, you can just 
find a page very, very easily. So, Richard, you talk about the fact that there is this magnificent empire. It's the largest empire that the world's ever known. There are these people who are very educated because of the culture, because of the reading, and they're all keen to travel. So what your book does is look at the stories told by these travellers who've gone out to all corners of the empire, to China, to Europe, to India, mm. to Africa. And you talk about the fact that when they came back, there was a huge, as you've talked about already, that there was a huge appetite for books. And I, I love that explanation of the paper and the, the ink and all of that. There was a huge appetite for books. So these travellers, when they came back, started writing stories about their adventures in these distant lands. Where are those stories found today? How, how have they come down to us? How did you find them? I found them in translation. Uh, there's no shortage of them. And they're easy enough to find, copies are easy enough to find in digital form on the dustier uh, corners of the internet, various libraries and uh, subscription services that, uh, that I use, uh, academic ones as well as more general ones. And I found this trove of, of these accounts in translation. These travellers' accounts were these giant, giant compendious geographies that explained the world and everything in it, pretty much. And it reflected their own feeling that they'd got it all right. They, the the Abbasids were like the Americans in the 20th century and the British in the 19th. They felt they'd won a great empire by dint of their superiority in all matters. They won an empire because they had the right ideology, the right religion, the best technology, the most learned scholars, the wisest and best administrators. And they felt that in return, uh, God had granted them this huge dominion. They had assessed a, what, a sense of what the Americans would have called manifest destiny to run the world sanely and properly from Baghdad. This is redolent in all their works. So if you feel like the world is your oyster like that, you want to go out and see it, describe it, and come back and compile these huge books. Books with wonderful names, like uh, Masudi's wonderful book, which was the best book I read of the time, which was uh, a most lovely title. It's called Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems. Now, I wanted to ask you specifically about that one. So I saw in your notes it was translated in 1841, so I'm assuming that's what you looked at, the translation, but you draw on Masudi's book quite a bit. Tell us about him and tell us about that book. I, I drew more heavily on a more recent translation in 1989, but a, a, an abridged one, which talks a lot about the, uh, the... The larger work describes the whole world and, and Masudi's travels. Who uh, was Masudi? He was a scholar and traveller from the 10th, late 9th, early 10th centuries, and he was the best travelled man of his era. Masudi, in his time, went, to, uh, went all the way to China. He went to India, Sri Lanka... He went into Central Asia. He walked through the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, went through Zoroastrian fire temples in Iran, what is now modern-day Iran, and travelled down the coast of Africa as far as Zanzibar and came back. So he was an enormously sophisticated traveller and wrote this wonderful book, Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems, which is full of wonderful accounts, really vibrant accounts of his, of his travel, but also of... He relates stories... Uh, of the court in Baghdad and the history of Baghdad, which are very gossipy and funny and Did precise you like that, and charming. Richard? I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> adored it. Uh, my book begins with a letter I found of Masudi's of a, of a potion. He, 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 he writes to a friend. He says, my friend, I, I've got something to share with you. It's a potion for invisibility. And, and it involves getting a dead cat 
and taking its head out and in its eye sockets putting in a couple of castor oil seeds, growing a plant, getting a pod from that plant, the fruit, getting the seeds from the castor oil. You've got to water it with blood. I forgot to mention that. That's important too. You get the castor oil seeds. You take them up to the top of a roof with a couple of teenagers on either side, pop one of the seeds in your mouth and you turn to the guy on your left and you say, do you see me? And then the guy to right, do you see me? And if they say yes, then you throw out, put another seed in your mouth. Keep doing that until they go, do you see me? And they go, no, no. And then there you are. You put that in the signet ring and you just put the signet ring in your mouth anytime you go out into the marketplace. There is, so, so he's got this kind of, and I actually think the whole thing's a prank, to be honest. But, uh, really? You think? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I think it's a prank. I think he just wants to uh, get a, a gormless idiot to climb on top of a roof <laughs> with a couple of teenagers going, now do you see me? I like that. Richard, I love also, you refer to the titles of some of these books, and, mm. and you make the point that the titles reveal the joy that these travellers took in their travel. The one that caught my eye, the book of curious and entertaining information. Yes. What was in that? Yes. Uh, often, the, these are often geographies, but they're often uh, travellers' tales as well. There's another one which is uh, Tales of the Marvellous, News of the Strange. Isn't that wonderful? It's <laughs> a beautiful title for a book. The Book of Gifts and Rarities. They have such beautiful titles. Uh, and there was one by the title that you've used. Yeah. There was a, an um, original yeah. book of roads and kingdoms. There was, written by a man named Ibn Karadabit, who was the, the postmaster general of his time. He was uh, the, the chief in Baghdad of the postal service, the Barid, it was known as, the best postal service in the world, which also made him, of course, the head of the secret police of the government at the time. And he compiled a wonderful geography of the world called the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, which... Mm -hmm. uh, I, I borrowed for my, for my own title. <laughs> Repurposed. Mm. Richard, having wet people's appetites, could you read for us now an extract from your book, yeah. the extract we talked about earlier? Yeah, sure. This is uh, a part of the book uh, that reflects a moment of Baghdad at the height of its power, money, sophistication. This was during the reign of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, which might be familiar to some people here today who grew up reading The Thousand and One Nights, or Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Harun al-Rashid appears in it as a fictional character. Often there are stories which begin with, it's one of those hot nights in Baghdad where it's too hot to sleep, and we find Harun al-Rashid in his palace, and he says, I'm bored to his friends. Let's go out into the city incognito. And he and his friends go out, and they run into a mystery or an adventure. But he was a real historical figure and ruled over Baghdad at its, at its height. And almost of equal note at the time was his vizier, who was a Persian uh, by the name of Yahya the Barmakidi. He came from the Barmakid clan. Uh, they were a kind of a whole caste of Iranian bureaucrats, extremely cultured, extremely well-educated, multilingual. And Yahya the Barmakid would hold symposiums in his mansion in Baghdad where the great intellectuals of the day would assemble and talk about this and that. They would be poets, doctors, uh, scientists, musicians, and this describes, I've written my book about a symposium he held one night on the subject of love. Yahya the Barmakid held a symposium in his mansion one evening on the subject of love. All the participants were well-known free thinkers. Describe love, Yahya requested. Just give me a brief def definition as it comes to you. The first to speak was a Shia who said, love is the fruit of similarity and the index of the fusion of two souls. It issues forth from the sea of beauty, from the pure and subtle principle of its essence. Its extent is without bounds. Too much of it destroys the body. <laughs> a second man, 
Akarajites spoke of its occult energy. Love is a magic emission. It is more hidden and more glowing than a burning coal. It exists only through the union of two souls and two forms. It penetrates the heart like water from a rain cloud seeping through the desert sands. Another saw love as both a permanent wound and a poison. Love sets its seal upon the eyes and impresses its signet upon the heart. Its pasture is the body. It drinks from the liver, seat of passion. Love is a draught from death's cup, a drink from the cisterns of bereavement. Then another man spoke up, a Zoroastrian from Persia, who considered the subject in medical terms. He wondered, how exactly does love enter the body? Does it come in through the eye or through the ear? Does it originate from the will or from sheer necessity? Ultimately, he concluded, who we fall in love with is beyond our control, determined before we are born. He said, God in his great wisdom and goodness gives every soul at its creation a rounded form like a sphere. Then he splits it in two and places each half in a different body. Then when one of those bodies meets that which encloses the other half of its own soul, love is of necessity born between them owing to the fact that they were once one. Isn't that fantastic? Mm. You, you imagine how great it would be for Anthony Albanese to bring his senior ministers around and one evening in the lodge <laughs> and say, speak to me of love. What is love? <laughs> Richard, I'm going to ask you to share a few other stories. There are so many stories in this wonderful book that I know that you're all going to want to rush out and buy it and read it yourselves. I'm just going to ask you about a few of them. Tell us, first of all, the story of... Ghazal, the poet, who was also known as Gazelle. Yes, Al-Ghazal. Oh, sorry, and in particular, his diplomatic mission to Scandinavia. Yes, Al-Ghazal was a poet. Uh, his name means the Gazelle. He was known as that because he was, a, he was kind of like a movie star. He was known for being fabulously handsome, uh, a devastating poet, up with the latest trends, uh, and very good at verbal sparring in poetic form, which got him into trouble a couple of times. He got kicked out by the Emir of Cordoba, where he lived and was, went over to Baghdad and learnt the new kind of street poetry that was coming through at the time. Some of this is a bit like those rapping competitions where people diss each other back and forth. It's <laughs> kind of interesting to watch that. Anyway, he was welcomed back eventually by the emir in Cordoba, who entrusted him with an and important... And Cordoba, Spain. Cordoba, Spain, 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 I should make yep. clear, yes, too, which was the great rival Muslim empire to uh, the one in Baghdad, uh, the Abbasid Empire at the time. Uh, what had happened that, that in the previous five years or so is that the Vikings had come down to Muslim Spain. They had set up camps around the Atlantic coast of France and then formed raiding parties in their, their brilliant ships going down the Atlantic coast, down into Spain, raiding villages, taking everything they like, grabbing slaves, destroying churches because they weren't quite Christian at this point. And eventually they swept round into the Mediterranean, past Gibraltar, but by the time they got to the Guadalquivir River, uh, the, the emir of Cordoba was ready for him. Now, this time, the Vikings were not attacking terrified civilians with sort of rough militias that had been put together. They were attacking one of the best-trained armies in the world. And <laughs> even the Viking records record, they got their asses kicked so hard by the emir's army that they had to scuttle back to their ships. Nearly all, half of them were killed. 
And eventually they begged for mercy and they were given, they were given quarter only when they agreed to hand over all the booty they had thus uh, their, uh, previously taken and hand them over to the Emir of Cordoba and they scuttled back to uh, Scandinavia. A year or so later, a diplomat arrived from the King of the Vikings. Now, this person is just called the King of the Vikings, arrived in Cordoba to the Emir and said, let's not have this bother again, let's have a treaty. And so the Emir sent the gazelle, the charmer, the ladies' man, the James Bond of, the, the, of uh, Cordoba to go and, and, and make a deal. And the, the, the account is it's problematic. It sort of overlaps with another account of, a, of him going to Constantinople. But the story goes that he went up the coast was confronted by a storm on the ship and rather than be intimidated and cower as the other men did, he stood on the deck quoting poetry to God in order to get him to back off with the storm. He arrived, it said, he arrived on an island with a palace on it. Now, if we are to accept the veracity of this account, it seems very likely he arrived at what is known as the island of Sealand, now in Denmark, where the king of the Danes, the Viking king of the Danes, which was at the time King Horik, which those fans of the TV series Vikings will instantly recognise, uh, had his castle. And it's recorded that when he arrived, now he made it clear, Al-Ghazal made it clear that as a Muslim, it was not accepted, it was not permitted to kneel before a foreign king, or before anyone for that matter, because this was the sin of idolatry. Mm. You are only to worship God. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger. And the Vikings were told this, but when he came to the, the throne room, the entranceway had been bricked up. The top half had been bricked up in order to force him to crawl through <laughs> on his knees. It's a pretty pissy trick. <laughs> and what the gazelle did was to sit down flat on his bum, stretch his legs out, and slide forward like that on his bum <laughs> underneath. King Horik was said to have burst out laughing and said, what a man this Al-Ghazal is. We intend to make him crawl before us, but instead he shows us the soles of his feet, which is considered a great insult, but he was amused by that. Then the queen walks in, the Viking queen walks in, who's unnamed, and Al-Ghazal just looks at her like that and just stops mid-sentence and starts staring at her. And she tells her interpreter, why? ask him why he's staring at me. And he says, it's because I've never seen such beauty in all of my life. I am totally swept away. We have no women of your likeness in all of Baghdad or Cordoba. It's extraordinary. And she says, are you just flattering me? She says, of course not. Of course I'm not flattering you. But of course she knows he is. But she's charmed by this. And it says he visits her every day. And in return, she gives him fabulous uh, clothes, oils, gold, all the stuff which he brings back to Cordoba with him. Whether the treaty is not, is not is successful or not is not even mentioned in this and, account. And it's he stays a, for 20 months. Yes, he stays for 20 months and he behaves like a total shocking pants man the whole time he's there. Comes back with all that treasure and that's the story, apparently. Whether a treaty is concluded with the Vikings is immaterial to the story. <laughs> all right, let's go now. And I, I heard how you pronounce it and I think I'm going to get it wrong. The legend of... Is it Gog and Magog or Gog and Magog? Gog and Magog, or however you want to pronounce it, yes. So first of all, who or what was Gog and Magog? And then what was the wall of Gog and Magog? The, the, the races of Gog and Magog were known, uh, in, uh, are known to uh, people who follow Jewish, Christian and Muslim theology. They're mentioned in the holy books of all the three great monotheisms. They were known to be a race of monsters that lived in the Badlands, far to the east of the Holy Land, far, far, far to the east, terrible place. And there was a legend that Alexander the Great had come through the area one day and was begged by the local people to build a wall to protect them against these monsters. 
and he did. He ordered them in the Quran. The story goes that he ordered the locals to make gigantic bricks made out of metal. They built this huge wall between two mountains that locked uh, the, the monsters of Gog and Magog behind this metal wall that they could never get over. And then he warned as he left, he said, there will come a day when this wall falls and that will be the end times, that will be the apocalypse. And, and then he writes All of off. that's in the Quran. And that's in the Quran. That story, that's yeah. also in the Bible and uh, the New Testament, in, in some of the books of the New Testament and in Jewish theology as well. And this was understood to be a kind of a key moment. The end of the world would come when the wall of Gog and Magog fell in the badlands of the East, these monsters who were said to be grotesque people who ate sort of aborted fetuses and who had like elephant ears that they would sleep on and put another one on as a blanket, like they were hideous, ghastly people with tusks growing out of their heads and all that sort of thing. They would sweep across the holy lands and infest the holy cities and that would indicate the end of the world was at hand. And... What brings you to that story is that in the ninth century, the Caliph Watik mm-hmm. uh, had a nightmare that the wall had been breached and that the hordes of Gog and Magog had been released. And he was so alarmed by this nightmare that he sent Salam, the interpreter, to inspect the wall and to report back. What did Salam find? Salam, the interpreter's account, appears in the original Book of Roads and Kingdoms. Salam... Uh, was empowered to lead a posse of some 50 men, I think it was, to go to the east, to find the wall of Gog and Magog, to see if it was still intact. Because if a caliph has a nightmare like that, it's taken terribly seriously. It's taken as a message from God. And Salam's account is interesting. He says, we ventured out of Iraq, we went up past the Caspian, into the Caucasus Mountains, we stopped at uh, Tiflis, which we know today as Tbilisi in, in Georgia, we went around the Caspian Sea, and then his, his account becomes kind of abstract. He says, we entered then a, a black and putrid land. We travelled through there, there was many, many travails, then we went into this wasteland where we saw the many ruined cities, ruined by the armies of Gog and Magog. From there... We travelled past some border posts and eventually arrived at a town which is translated as Igu or Imu. And a day out of that, eventually, he said, we arrived at the wall of Gog and Magog. And in his account, he said, it's just like it is in the Quran. It's a giant wall of metal bricks between two mountains. It's protected by these two uh, guards, uh, two sets of guards and watch houses who ride out three times a week. And in the middle of the great gates built by Alexander, they hammer it with a mallet. It goes clang, clang, clang. And if they hear the monsters of Gog and Magog grumbling behind it, going like that, then they know it's all fine. And it was all fine. It was fine. There was no no problem. The war was intact. Salam was pleased with what he saw. They rode back again through Central Asia, through Samarkand, I think, and Tashkent, and arrive back in Iraq and report to the Caliph that it's all fine. And that's the end of the story. Now, for many years... Sorry, Mm. my next question. My next question was truth or fable? For many years, (laughs) scholars, the Orientalists who translated these, these, these accounts thought, well, it's just a classic Arabic wonder tale. It's like something from the Thousand and One Nights. But then his Dutch translator in the late 19th century, the Goju, looked at it and thought he could peg out an itinerary. And I think I can too. I've got a different one from him. And I don't think this proves anything. It could be an entirely made-up or half-made-up tale, but you can peg an itinerary from it. Salam said he came out of the, around the Caspian and entered a black and putrid land. Now, Dagoji thought he went north around the Tian Shan Mountains, and I think instead he went uh, into the Karakum Desert, if this is indeed the case. 
in modern day, I think it's Uzbekistan. The Karakum Desert on the far side of the Caspian is famed for its black shale sands and for its substantial methane deposits. A black and putrid land indeed. Mm. The methane deposits are so voluminous that when it was part of the Soviet Union in the 70s, they built an oil rig on it, a gas rig on it that just fell into the entire gas crater underneath it, you know, marvels of Soviet engineering. And they thought, well, we can't do anything with that. We'll just set fire to the remnant gas and walk away. It's still burning today. Wow. In modern day Uzbekistan, it's known as the gateway to hell and it's become a tourist attraction. Wow. So this is the black and putrid land, possibly. Then this is, we went into the ruined cities of Gog and Magog. Now, when you go over the Karakum and you go over the Pamir Mountains, you arrive at the city of Kashgar, which still stands today. It's the westernmost city in modern-day China, and it's been there since the year Dot, a famous trading post on the far edge of the Taklamakan Desert. Now, the Taklamakan Desert is a desert the size of modern-day Germany. It's one of the most inhospitable places on Earth. And so much the silk roads had to bifurcate around it. There were ring roads around either side of the I-shaped desert. Now, there are guard posts, he mentions, which there were guard posts built by the Tang Dynasty Empire along the northern and southern uh, silk roads. And then when he gets to the far side to this place called Igu, well, someone's hypothesized this could be the land, the, the city of Yimu, which still exists today in Gansu province in China. From there, it's a day's ride to the westernmost reaches of the Great Wall of China. The Han Dynasty Great Wall, which I hasten to add, Nicole, looks nothing like the wall Salam describes. It's these effective but not very impressive looking walls made out of matted luwai weeds, which were the riverine reeds along the, the, the river, rivers that streamed through it. And the cities ravaged by Gog and Magog in the middle of the Taklamakan are these lost Buddhist cities who, that were built around about the time of Christ that uh, along these streams and the oases that go through the Taklamakan, the streams changed course, the cities became no longer viable, they abandoned the cities and the sand blew over it, the desert filled it in and they're still there today, these lost cities. Some of them were recovered by Western archaeologists in the early 20th century, and that's the whole other second part of my book. And so, we're going to come to that yeah. right now. So I just want to say, yeah. it, you can peg out. I don't think it proves anything. I, I, I don't even know if it's, you could say it's plausible, but I certainly, th certainly think you could say it's possible mm. that Salam the Interpreter and his men went all the way to the Great Wall of China and came back. Mm. I love this story about the thousand Buddha caves, and in particular, the library caves. So start by telling us, who was Oral Stein and how did he become a hero in England and one of the most reviled Westerners in Chinese history? Oral Stein, Mark Oral Stein, was a Hungarian-British archaeologist who, as a small boy, became inspired by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great just keeps popping up again and again and again in my, in my book. And he fascinated the ancient Romans, he fascinated the, the uh, Basid Arabs, the Persians, and the 19th, 20th century British. He wanted to travel in the footsteps of Alexander the Great, and that led him to Central Asia, where Alexander the Great founded the Greek cities. And sorry, we should just say this is in the early 20th century? This is the early 20th century, indeed. Uh, he spent some time in the north of India, then went used that to follow, follow, find his way into Central Asia. And the city of Kandahar in Afghanistan was once named Alexandria. It was the city found by uh, Alexander's generals uh, in, Alexander's, in, in the time of the Alexander, Alexander's conquests. 
And he said it was around these places that an extraordinary fusion took place between Buddhist theology, which came out of India, uh, and humanistic Greek art, ancient Greek art. Until they met in that part of Central Asia, depictions of the Buddha in Indian art were always abstract. It would be a riderless horse or footprints in the, in, in the sand or the dirt. But then once it meets humanistic Greek art, uh, you start to see the Buddha appearing as we often see him today, the Maitreya Buddha sitting cross-legged, the serene expression on his face, the long uh, earlobes. Um, this is a result of the interaction of Buddhist thought and ideology and art with Greek humanistic art. This is completely fascinating. So tell us about the Thousand Buddha Caves. Well, this wasn't even of interest to Mark Orlstein. He discovered, he well, discovered, he, he uh, recovered the knowledge for the West of these lost Buddhist cities in the Taklamakan Desert and excavated some of them and took stuff from them and brought them back to Britain. While he was there, he'd heard uh, near the city of Dunhuang on the western edge of the Taklamakan, he'd heard about a monk at the Thousand Buddha Caves who had found something extraordinary. Now, this, I should explain what the Thousand Buddha Caves are. The Thousand Buddha Caves were uh, and are a network of caves, a trove of Buddhist art, the greatest in all the world made by Buddhist pilgrims going from China to India uh, for over 2,000 years. Uh, this chalky uh, cliff surface was dug out, more and more grottos were dug out, more and more frescoes were painted, more and more statues were put in there, because this created karmic merit for the person creating these things. Uh, and they'd fallen into decline as China had declined in the 19th century. And one single uh, Buddhist monk had taken it upon himself to become the guardian of the caves. One day, the monk, Wang Liang Yu looked, saw a kind of in one of the fresco, the plasters, plastered walls inside the caves, a kind of a, a, like a, cracked, a crack in it that seemed to form the shape of a door. And he got uh, some of the workmen to pull down the plaster, and it was a door, and they opened the door, and behind it was this extraordinary trove of letters, of documents, of silk banners this library cave, as they called it, of documents that had been kept in pristine condition by the total darkness of this cave and by the absolutely dry desert air. Stein heard about this. It had only just been uncovered. He went there with his best friend, who was a Chinese translator. They managed to inveigle their way into the cave to see these documents. And through the payment of a single silver horseshoe, Oral Stein was able to take the majority of these documents back to the British Library. So I love that you, you gave us the modern version of that, that it was equivalent to about 130 pounds, and what he sent back was 12 boxes of manuscripts yeah. and art back to the British Museum. Yes, that's right. One of, amongst them is the oldest printed book in the world. It's a printed book of the Diamond Sutra, one of the lectures of the Buddha, about the nature of uh, trans how everything's, uh, the transience of this world. And it's on display in the British Museum. I went and saw it, took a photo of it, which is for this book. Now, <laughs> Oral Stein, of course, was a hero and lionised in London at the time. But very quickly, the Chinese in the early 20th century realised what had been taken from them. This isn't a modern phenomenon. They accused him of being a robber, a thief. Uh, looter. At, I mean, it was just... It, it was a looter, really. It was a looter, he? yeah. He yeah. was accused of being a looter. And 
uh, and became increasingly unwelcome in China. And further expeditions, more and more, more and more societies wanted to get their access to the library cave and get more of the documents. The Japanese, of course, who had a huge interest in Buddhism, uh, managed to get some scrolls. The French got some scrolls. The Germans got some scrolls. And gradually, the place was being looted. And, and this created enormous outrage amongst educated Chinese people. At the, at the time. There's one more great story I'd like Rich to tell if we have time. I can tell the story if you like while we wait people to come forward. Tell us about the Australian okay. connection to yeah. the, um, so the library caves. So what I heard caves. about the library caves at Dunhuang, I remember Dunhuang, I remember hearing a story about Dunhuang. Uh, seven or eight years ago, I was, went to Beijing for a conference and at a dinner convened by Professor David Walker, Edmund Capon was there. Remember Edmund Capon, the um, director of the Gallery in New South Wales? Uh, a great lover of ancient Chinese Buddhist art. And he told a story about Dunhuang. He said before he got the job, he was working at the V&A in England. Before he, got, he was given the appointment to come to Australia. And he went, before he left, he went to a party in London. And at the party was Sidney Nolan, as in the great Ned Kelly painter, Sidney Nolan. Siddy, as he called him. And he said, Siddy and I got chatting. We both realised we were fascinated with Buddhist art of that era. And we both knew about the thousand Buddha caves at Dunhuang. This is 1979, and he said, we made a bet. The first to get to Dunhuang would go into a specific cave where there stood a famous, gigantic statue of the Maitreya Buddha, and which they knew stood on a concrete plinth. And the first person to go there was to leave a tiny little mark on that concrete plinth to indicate that he'd gotten there first. Now, it took Edmund until 1983 to get there because China was still coping with the fag end of the Cultural Revolution. He got out there, I think on a bloody horse and cart or something, all the way out all the way out to Western China, to, to Dunhuang, and he arrived and he said, yes, I've gotten here, I've beaten Sid, I've beaten Sid. He got permission to go into this cave. Yes, I've gotten into the cave, and there it was, the Maitreya Buddha, in all of its mighty magnificence, a skyscraper of a statue. And he was absolutely joyful. And there was the concrete plinth, and he walked around to the back of it. And on the back of the plinth was all this graffiti, Chinese graffiti from Chinese tourists. And he said, there, in the upper left-hand corner, he said, I saw a tiny little Ned Kelly. <laughs> Such a great story. I love that story, yeah. Yes, question Hello. here. Uh, thank you, Richard. Fascinating as ever. Thank um, you. Amazing to hear about the history of Arabia. Very simple question. What went wrong? What went wrong between then and now? Um, oh, God. <laughs> Not simple. Let's book just, out this room for another hour. Just a short question, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if what went wrong. What went wrong? Uh, empires rise and fall. Uh, I, there's a great um, uh, Muslim philosopher by the name of Ibn Khaldun who wrote a book called... Uh, uh, has an introduction called the Makadima, which became hugely influential in the 50s with sci-fi writers like Isaac Asimov and Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune. The Foundation series is based on what he wrote, and he wrote about the rise and fall of empires. He said they tend to follow the same pattern. The warriors come out of the desert full of lethal intent, united by a force that he calls asabiyah, which means group feeling, There's a, which is what Islam gave those Bedouin warriors. They burst out into the world. They can live on nothing at all. They can operate like with guerrilla armies. They can pop, create major havoc, then slip back into the desert where no one can follow them. Again and again, he said, we see this in history. They become very successful. They win an empire. You build a hierarchy, and for a while, that can help contain the Asabiya as your empire grows and more and more people are drawn into it. 
But over time, he said, you get rich, you get lazy. A giant army is, is needed, but the citizens don't want to fight in the army, so you hire mercenaries. Then after a while, those mercenaries capture the emperor. This is, this is, a, this is the story of the Roman Empire. It's exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. Uh, and the emperor becomes a captive of the army. That becomes cynical. Uh, the, the finances get bled out, and then a new group of people come out of uh, the badlands of the world. And for the Abbasid Empire, it was the armies of the Mongol Khans. Uh, Genghis Khan, followed by uh, his grandson, Hulagu Khan. And you write about that, Richard. There's an apocalypse at the end of my book. Mm. The absolute destruction of Baghdad, total destruction at the hands of the Mongol army, which I can't help but see as one of the great catastrophes in the history of the world. Uh, Hulagu Khan, uh, there was a foolish caliph in power at the time, destroyed every last bit of Baghdad. One of the great, uh, the pride of Baghdad in many ways was its library, which was known as the Bayt al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom. That was utterly destroyed, and all the books were destroyed, and the scholars were murdered. And it was said afterwards by a Persian scholar who observed this, he said, the waters of the Tigris ran red with the blood of its scholars and black with the ink of its books. Mm. And yet, and yet, and yet, this is what I've found, the consolation, if there is to any to be had. It was around about the time of the destruction of Baghdad in this year 1258 that the other great city of Islam, Cairo, was starting to publish the compendium of stories of the Thousand and One Nights. And it's in here, these stories that live in all our imaginations, and everyone, every single person in this room has got a picture of medieval Baghdad in our heads, even if it's from watching you know, the Disney version of Aladdin. You know. um, <laughs> we've all got a picture of the glory of medieval Baghdad in our heads. And I think it's, it's, it's at the same time the reality of Baghdad is destroyed that through the Thousand and One Nights it becomes an immortal city of the imagination forever. Richard, there's a couple of questions that have come in. Um, yes. First one is, do different translations of ancient texts differ significantly? Oh, my word, they do. The 19th century is full of Baroque flowery language. Uh, so the more modern translations are very, very welcome indeed. And it's like that reading the sagas of Iceland. They were translated in the 19th century by William Morris in, in versions that I find quite horrible and unreadable that are overwrought. And the more modern translations by Magnus Magnuson are um, wonderful. They're glorious. They're uh, vivid and they're more true to the or original style. So I find, again, the more modern the translation, often the better it is. Mm. Yes. I've got a question from Richard at the State Library of Western Australia. Did your previous writing and books inform your approach and content in this book, The Book of Roads and Kingdoms? Yes. My first book, uh, Ghost Empire, was a history of Constantinople, uh, which was the great rival to Baghdad in many ways. And they were kind of freaked out by each other, like God has granted us dominion over the whole world. We are the inheritors of the Roman Empire. So they fought in Constantinople. Similarly, we are uh, given a dominion over the earth by God. They fought the same way in Baghdad. But I often looked at the same events that I'd written about in Ghost Empire, but whereas Ghost Empire was seeing those events from Constantinople, to write about it from the point of view of Baghdad which was very often richer and more powerful than Constantinople at the time, was hugely illuminating and an enormously pleasurable for me. <laughs> um, how did these Arab travellers pay for their travels? I mean, now we use a debit card or <laughs> previously <laughs> travellers' checks. How did... I mean, was there universal currency? Mm. Um, 
for the caliphate that they could use, or how did they pay for things as they went? There was the gold, uh, gold and silver coins that were accepted all over the world that were coined in Baghdad. To the extent where gold uh, dinars and silver dirhams are found in Viking graves in the north of Sweden wow. and also off the coast of Australia. Wow. Marchandbar Island, off the Northern Territory, there was an airman posted there during World War II to man a radar station for Japanese to look for Japanese incoming aircraft. One day on the beach, he found a, a little handful of coins. He waited until the 1970s before he bothered to identify them. Some were from the East India, the Dutch East India Company, but some were from the Kingdom of Kilwa, a medieval Islamic kingdom from the east coast of Africa, which flourished in the 12th century. What the hell are those coins <laughs> doing on a beach in Australia? Wow. Well, there were great trade routes going around the Indian Ocean. They were the, the richest trade routes in the world at the time. They were called the Maritime Silk Roads, reaching from Zimbabwe, modern-day the coast of modern-day Zimbabwe, reaching right around the Indian Ocean, down around uh, India, Sri Lanka, through the Malaccas, up from Singapore, up to Guangzhou in China. Sometimes ships would get blown off course. Ships have been found off the coast of Indonesia full of Chinese porcelain, uh, which were on their way to Basra and, and to Baghdad. So yes, they paid in, in gold, uh, or they were good at, uh, they, they were warriors who could extort local people and live off the land. Richard, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.